0: Please open your Bibles to Genesis 15, be in Genesis 15 verses 1 to 6, that's page 10 of your pew Bibles, Genesis 15. As you're turning there, please pray with me one more time. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his spirit. I pray that we would see Christ this morning illumine our hearts, illumine our eyes, help us to worship you this morning through your text. In Jesus' name, amen. This is God's word, starting in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word justification. Justification. Maybe not much at all comes to your mind. Maybe you've never heard this term in a church or Christian context. And you simply think of its common usage to provide a justification or a reason for something. Or maybe you're curious. You've heard that word used in church, at our church, as a part of our statement of faith. But you've never truly understood what that means. Or maybe your eyes glaze over a little bit. Oh no, another big theological word. Justification, sanctification, propitiation. Is this going to be a theological lecture? Can't we cut through the theologizing and just get to practical application? Or maybe you're excited. Semper Reformanda. You think of the men and women from church history who've stu- stood firm and even died for doctrines such as the doctrine of just- justification. You think of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, Here I Stand, or the Oxford Martyrs, uh, you know, Play the Man, Mr. Ridley, Master Ridley. And you're convinced that this is a first order doctrinal issue and you're prepared to die on this hill. I do hope you learned something about the doctrine of justification this morning and its theological importance, but more than mere knowledge, my prayer this morning is that you will be persuaded from the life of Abraham that a true understanding of the doctrine of justification will bring you joy. That's my goal this morning for all of us, that we will have joy in seeing Abraham justified through his life from Genesis 15. This doctrine, as I alluded to a second ago, the doctrine of justification is one of the primary issues the Protestant reformers of the 16th century had with the church of their day. Uh, and it eventually ignited what we now call the Protestant Reformation. It was 500 years ago. But lest we think that this was just a scholarly academic conflict, listen to how some of the reformers talked about justification. So Martin Luther he felt such liberation and joy at his discovery of justification in scripture that he wrote. I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Or William Tyndall. He found it such merry, glad, and joyful tidings that it made him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Or Thomas Bilney. He found it gave him a marvelous comfort and quietness in so much That my bruised bones leaped for joy. So that's my hope for us, that we would have the same kind of joy this morning as we learn about justification, what it means to be declared righteous in God's sight through faith. So I have three main points from six verses. Point number one, Abraham's doubt, getting that from verses one to three. Point number two, God's assurance from verse one and then verses four and five. And finally, third, Abraham's justification. From verse six, Abraham's doubt, God's assurance, Abraham's justification. Point number one, Abraham's doubt. I'll read verses one to three again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I'll stop there real quick. What are these things? So back in Genesis 12, which the last time I preached, which was about two months ago, we looked at Genesis 12. It was the promises given to Abraham, the promise of land, of seed, and of blessing. This was about 10 years previous to this moment right here. Um, And since then, Abraham has uh, fought some battles. He's had some conflict with Lot. And uh, now, now he's here in Genesis 15, 10 years later, and still those promises have not been fulfilled. So, back to the text, into verse one. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So, if there's one thing we know about Abram from the Bible, if there's one thing he is known for, it's his faith. Abraham is a man. Of faith. Abraham lived a life of faith. You could actually look at his entire life in the account we get in Genesis, and uh, th- this is often how it went. God would say, I'll send you out. Where? I'll tell you later. Just go. God said, I'll give you a land. What land? I'll tell you later. Just go. God said, I'll give you a son. Abraham said, How? I'll tell you later. Just wait. God said, Kill your son. Why? I'll tell you later, just trust me. Abraham, this great man of faith who followed God consistently when he was unsure of the outcome. In our text this morning, he was doubting God's promises. As I said a minute ago, in Genesis 12, God had promised him a son. And through that son, he would make him, would make Abraham a great nation that would bless the nations, that would bless the world through that one son. But now 10 years have passed and he has no son. Abraham's probably about 85 years old right now. And his wife, Sarah is 75 years old. And he's doubting. Of course he is. He's doubting. How can an 85 year old man and a 75 year old woman have a son? Will God really give me a son? The person who will get my inheritance is a servant named Eliezer. Is that what you meant when you promised me a son? I must have misunderstood you. It's a great comfort to me that even the saints with the greatest faith recorded in scripture at times doubt. This may be surprising to you in, in Matthew 28. So just before Jesus is going to ascend to his father in heaven, he gives what we, what we call the great commission. And in Matthew 28, 16 to 17, this is what Matthew records. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I'm not sure if this is referring to the 11 disciples or maybe a broader group of people who were with Jesus at the time. But either way, these are people who have physically been with the risen Christ. They've heard him teach. He's taught how all of scripture points to him. They've eaten with him. They've even touched him and they still doubted. As one pastor has said, faith is not the absence of doubt. It is continuing to follow Jesus in the midst of doubt. So be encouraged this morning. It's okay to doubt. Jesus tells us we only need faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a little bit of faith. We can respond to God the way the Father did in Mark nine twenty-four. I believe, help my unbelief. What doubts do you have of God? What doubts do you have this morning? Maybe you keep struggling with the same recurring sins and maybe you doubt, will God really save someone like me? Am I really even a Christian? Or why would God allow the Taliban to terrorize Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or other persecution of Christian brothers and sisters around the world? Is he really good? Or maybe it's in your own circumstances and your own suffering and trials Does God really care for me? It doesn't seem like it as I look at these these trials and this suffering. Or maybe it's the documented cases of abuse that we keep hearing about in Christian churches and institutions. Is this the institution, the bride of Christ, that I can place my trust in? Or maybe it's doubt when we're living in a culture that is so... Anathetical in its ethics and morality to biblical teaching, where Christians will continually be marginalized. And maybe you're already feeling that right now when you're thinking, is this worth it? Is it even true? I wonder if you feel like you can honestly express your doubts to God. You can. He is a good father who wants to hear from his children. Scripture is full of God's people honestly expressing their doubts to him. You think of the Psalms, of the book of Job, of Lamentations, and other accounts as well. Go to your father with your doubts. That was point number one. Point number two, so you have Abraham's doubt, now God's assurance. God's assurance. Getting this from verse 1 and then verses 4 and 5. Let's look at the text. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. Skipping down to verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Did God get angry at Abram for his doubt? Was he mad? No. This great man of faith needed comfort. And his good father gave it to him. What form did the comfort take? What form did that comfort take? Let's, let's look at the text here. Number one, in, a, in God's word, the form of God's word. God gave Abraham his word, which revealed his character. First, God told him not to fear. Verse one, he said, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. I'm unsure if this fear... Was due to his current circumstances. He'd actually just fought some kings, um, so maybe he was, he was fearful that uh, they would come back and physically harm him. Uh, maybe it was fear that the promises that he was so trusting in have not been fulfilled yet, and he was doubting, like we talked about a second ago. Or maybe this was a, an appropriate godly fear of a sinful human being in the presence of a holy God. Either way, God brought him comfort. And look what God grounded that comfort in, in his own character. He said, I am your shield, verse 1. God's primary means of speaking to us now is through the Bible. We don't need visions like Abraham was given because God's word, Scripture, is sufficient for building our faith. God's word reveals God's character, and that brings great comfort to God's people. So the first form that it took was God's word. The comfort was God's word. Number two, God's sign. God gave a sign to Abraham as well. Look at verse five. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. God is gracious to give a sign to strengthen Abraham's faith. All he had to do was look at the stars and see a visible sign that God would keep his promise to him. And I'm encouraged and I hope you are as well, that God still uses signs today to comfort us. There are two primary, visible, tangible signs that God uses to build our faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We actually get to participate in one of those today. We get to participate in the Lord's Supper. The church has historically called these ordinances or sacraments. They are ordinary means of grace. God has given these ordinances to fulfill our human desire for something physical. Our God is merciful. He condescended to grant us these ordinances. They're physical objects that we can touch, feel, taste, smell, and see. They are God's visible word to us. When, you, when we take the Lord's Supper this morning and you hold the bread or the cup of juice, know that Jesus' body was broken for you And his blood was shed for you. Thank God that he's given these ordinary means as signs to build your faith. As you take the bread, you know that as real as that bread is, so was the sacrifice of Christ's body on the tree for you. As you take the cup, you know that as real as the juice is, so real is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let it remind you that you really are truly united to Christ. John Calvin has said, it's a long quote. It's a good quote. But as our faith is slight and feeble, slight and feeble. That's so true, isn't it? At times our faith is slight and feeble. Unless it be propped on all sides and sustained by every means, it trembles, wavers, totters, and at last gives way. Here, our merciful Lord, according to his infinite kindness so tempers himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground cleave to the flesh and do not think about or even conceive of anything spiritual he condescends to lead us to himself even by these earthly elements and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings you know what he's saying there he's saying it is hard for us as physical earthly people to conceive of spiritual things And God knows that. Your good father knows that. So he gives some physical, tangible things. With his word, he gives these physical things so that our faith will be strengthened. Praise God for his signs. Let's take advantage of them. That was point number two. Moving to point number three, Abraham's justification. Abraham's justification. Getting this from verse six. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him. As righteousness. This verse is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's quoted four times in the New Testament, three times by Paul, once by James. Paul quotes it twice in, in Romans four and uh, and then once in Galatians three. Paul uses this verse, the Apostle Paul, to develop his doctrine of justification by faith. And it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, as, as we mentioned earlier. It's what's known as the material cause of the Reformation. Martin Luther called it the article by which the church stands or falls. If we get this doctrine wrong, Warnell Road, we lose the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we lose salvation. A compromise on this doctrine compromises our full dependence on Christ— and the gratuity of grace and the entire Christian life begins to unravel. So, this is really important. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, has said justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. And he means that damnable in the real sense. We are not saved. We are cursed and damned if we get this, this doctrine wrong, if the church gets it wrong. So we've used this term a lot this morning. What is it? What is justification? This is the simplest way um, I know how to explain it. It's a declaration of God that we are righteous, holy, perfect, as if we obeyed God perfectly. Not because we actually are righteous, but because of Christ's righteousness that's been given it, given or credited to us by faith. You may have heard the little uh, way to remember justification, to be justified is just if I'd never sinned. Has anybody heard that? Yeah, just if I'd never sinned. Um, that's really only half of the equation. That's good. I think that's a helpful way to think about the essence of justification, but that's only half of it. Um, to be justified is to be, given, to be forgiven of our sins, yes, but also given the perfect obedience of Jesus through a legal declaration of God. It's not just that our slate is wiped clean. It's actually been wiped clean and then given the perfect merits, the perfect obedience of Christ that he earned on our behalf. Justification is the foundational benefit of our union with Christ. Our, our statement of faith, Warnell Road's statement of faith says justification immediately brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing we need for time and eternity. It is the foundational benefit we get in salvation. It makes it really easy as a preacher or just a Bible interpreter, someone who's studying the Bible, when the Bible interprets itself And thankfully, that is what is happening with this passage of Scripture as well. The entire chapter of Romans 4 is Paul's exposition, his explaining of Genesis 15. So a lot of what I'm going to get comes directly from Paul in Romans 4. We're actually going to flip there in a second. this is a good way, by the way, this is a good way to study your Bibles is to follow your cross-references. If you have a Bible that has cross-references in it, um, follow them. Take, take the time. If you're in the New Testament and it looks like it's quoting the Old Testament, go back and read that Old Testament passage and the context of it or vice versa. If it's, a, if it's an Old Testament passage and it looks like uh, some of the New Testament authors are quoting it, go follow it and see what, they, uh, see what they're talking about. The Bible is a compilation of God's deeds in history, his redemptive deeds, and also, an interpretation of those deeds. We sell ourselves short if we just stay a little bit narrow. Um, the Bible is one book with one author, with one message, and we should be treating it as such. So, let's look at Romans four twenty-three to twenty-five. Romans four twenty-three to twenty-five. You can flip there, or I'll I'll uh, read it out loud. Romans four twenty-three to twenty-five. Paul here tells us. That the story of Abraham's justification was written for us. So, lest you think that we are inappropriately allegorizing by taking the story of one man being justified in the Old Testament and linking that to our lives now, uh, the Bible itself tells us that that's the way we're supposed to view Abraham. So, verse 23, Romans 4, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him. So he's, he's quoting part of our verse six from Genesis 15. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I was confused uh, about this, I think, a, a lot growing up, and maybe some people are as well here. How were people in the Old Testament saved? The Bible's pretty clear. People are justified today the same way Abraham was. So how were people saved in the Old Testament? Faith in Jesus. How are people saved in the New Testament? And now, faith in Jesus. Our text says, so back to Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. He didn't just believe in the Lord, like there is some God who's speaking to me. It said he believed him. Believe means to stand firm. He trusted the things that God said. Hebrews 6 refers to this type of belief as a sure and steady anchor to our soul. That's like the song we just sang, Christ our sure and steady anchor. So what do we learn about Abraham's belief or what Paul in the New Testament calls faith? That is also true of our faith. Four truths, four truths about faith from our text this morning. Truth number one, faith is trust, not mere mental agreement. Faith is trust, not mere mental agreement. So what is the nature of Abraham's faith? The history of the church has described true saving faith as having three elements, knowledge, assent, and trust. I like the acronym CAT, K A T, so that I can remember that. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You need to know something, that's the knowledge, the data, the information, but not just know it, but assent to it. Yes, this is true. I agree, this is true. But that's not enough. I think some people stop there and think that that's faith. Just being persuaded intellectually, that's faith. Even the demons possess this kind of faith. Knowledge about Jesus and assent that it's true. The third key element is trust. To receive and rest on the truth that you've assented to. As an analogy, consider the pew that you're sitting in. You can have knowledge that the pew will hold you. Yeah, it looks like it's, a, it's sturdy and it'll hold me up. And you can even assent theoretically that it will. But the only way we know that you believe that it is a reliable pew is by entrusting yourself to it and sitting down. That's what it means to believe, to trust, to have faith in Christ, to put your entire weight on Christ. That's saving faith. Faith is trust in God and his promises despite our circumstances and evidence to the contrary. It's not blind faith, but it is trust despite evidence to the contrary. Look at Abraham It was a biological impossibility that an 85-year-old man and a 75-year-old woman would have a son. But Abraham believed. And he was declared righteous because of it. Faith trusts God despite the seeming audacity and impossibility of his promises. And if you think about it, the sinner is in the exact same position. Dead in sin. It is impossible for a human sinner to make himself alive, him or herself alive, and come to Christ. The sinner's hope must be in God and his divine and gracious forgiveness. So I ask you this morning, what impossible situation are you dealing with today? Pray for the faith to trust God and his promises despite your circumstances. Are you trusting and resting on Christ this morning? That's faith. Be comforted. If you, if you tend to doubt your salvation, if you're just trusting on Christ, you may see your sin, your dead heart, knowing that you're prone to wander. But if you're just trusting in him that I, I fully lay on him, rely on Christ, then be comforted. That's, that's faith. That's saving faith. And that's all it is. That's mustard seed type faith. So be encouraged by that. So that was truth number one about faith. Truth number two about faith It's an instrument, not a work. Faith is an instrument, not a work. So this trusting faith that we've been talking about is what was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So does that mean that Abraham's faith was some kind of a work that God declared as a righteous act? No. It's not that Abraham's faith had any merit in it. And then that's why he was declared righteous. God didn't lower his standard of perfect obedience and count faith itself and a feeble faith at that as perfect obedience to the law. I mean, how could we do anything to earn Christ's death? No, faith is what's known as the instrumental cause of our justification. It's the instrument. So as an illustration, faith is not the drink, it's the straw one way to think about it is it's a conduit. Faith connects us to the source of our righteousness. The value of faith is not in itself, but that it joins us to God. It links us to his promises in Christ. It's an empty hand that receives the gift of God. Faith may be our act. We are acting in faith. We're the ones doing it, but it's not our work. Ephesians 2.8 is clear that even faith itself is a gift of God. That was truth number two. Truth number three about faith. Faith is alone, not mixed with works. Faith is alone, not mixed with works. Paul is crystal clear on this in Romans 4, 3, Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham was declared righteous by faith alone, not by works. And that's one of the solas of the Reformation, the solas alone of the Reformation. Uh, In Romans, particularly Paul's teaching that Abraham believed before he was circumcised, therefore that act of faith could not have factored into his justification because he was declared righteous before he even performed that act. Uh, In Galatians, Paul's taking a little bit different take on it that um, Abraham was justified before the law was given, actually 430 years before the law was given at Mount Sinai. So therefore the works of the law and the entire Mosaic covenant could not have factored into Abraham's justification. But either way, Paul is crystal clear. Abraham was declared righteous by faith, not by works. If you look at the entire account of Abraham's life in the book of Genesis, he was sort of a mixed bag. Like we've said, he's known for his faith, and he was a good and godly faithful man. Um, Had moments of great faith, but also moments of great failure. At times, he was a coward and a bad husband. He lied twice about his wife, Sarah, putting her in a compromising position, uh, saying she was his sister just to keep himself out of harm's way. He also went ahead of God by using Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, um, slave, to, uh, to have a child. He didn't trust God. He really didn't believe God would fulfill his promise and, and went ahead of him. Um, but neither his acts of faith, the good acts, nor his acts of doubt, his bad acts, factored into his justification. Simply his trust, his belief, and sometimes very weak trust and belief at that, in God's promises. We are all legalists. We are all trying to use the law, obedience, our works to earn God's favor. All of us, every single one of us. If you're a Christian here, if you're a non-Christian here, that's true of you. This is the default position of every person. This is also what makes Christianity unique compared to all other religions. So Christianity is an announcement of good news. God's promise that must be received and believed. All other religions are about performing or acting in order to earn God's favor, which is why sometimes it's the Christian. So, sometimes non-believers look more righteous and maybe even are on an earthly standpoint, better people than non-Christians. That's what we call common grace. The reason for that is it's actually only the Christian who realizes I am so sinful that Christ had to die for me. And it's the, it's the one who actually comes to the end of their rope, so to speak, and realizes that that's a Christian because it's, it's by faith. It's just trust. It's not about me. It's he did so, by his grace, he did something for me. Christ died for me when I was dead in my sins. Um, that, that is often the case. Now, he doesn't leave us there. That's a totally different sermon, but we call that sanctification. It's the actually making of us more righteous over time in a progressive sense um, over time. But yes, we do not have to earn God's favor. All other religions teach that and it's the default of the human condition. So kids, children in the room, I know there's a few in here. Isn't it great that you get to learn this at a young age, that your parents are teaching you that faith saves you, not what you do or don't do. I know that most of your life, is based on your obedience. Your teachers at school, your parents want you to be obedient. That's good. You need to trust your authority. Um, But if it sounds too good to be true, that all you have to do is have faith and believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. uh, It is true. Believe it. That is is the great news of the gospel. So be thankful that you get to hear that from your parents and from us at at our church. Truth number four about faith. Truth number four. Faith is extrospective, not introspective. Faith is extrospective, not introspective, kind of a a big word, but faith looks to another. It looks not inward, but outward. And by faith, we are declared or credited or reckoned righteous. It's what some of the reformers, including Martin Luther, called an alien righteousness, something outside of us. The Latin was extranos, outside of us, coming from another. And whose righteousness exactly was credited to Abraham? Abraham. Now, the text of Genesis 15 doesn't tell us. It just says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this was a little less clear in the Old Testament, but crystal clear in the New Testament that Abraham's faith was specifically faith in Jesus. Did you know that Abraham had faith in Jesus 2,000 years before Jesus even walked the earth? Jesus is the object of faith and it's his righteousness that's credited to us as well. To say that we are justified by faith is just kind of shorthand or another way to say that we are justified by Christ and his righteousness alone, because faith is the instrument that unites us to Christ. Faith looks to Christ. It doesn't look inward. It doesn't look at yourself. It looks outward to Christ. Like we said a second ago, justification is more than having our sins forgiven. Justification means that in God's eyes, we're given Jesus' perfect record. We're treated as if, we have, as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. We are given the love that Jesus deserved. We have, we have the same access to the Father that Jesus did. I've heard this illustration before. It's as if we were pardoned from death row. We were justly accused. We had murdered somebody. We're on death row. And it's as if we were pardoned and then given immediately the Congressional Medal of Honor. The good news is that all this comes not from us doing anything, but simply by faith, by belief. What Christ earned becomes ours by a transaction called imputation. This is a big word, but a pretty simple principle. Christ obeyed God perfectly and his perfect record is credited or imputed to us by faith. I'm, I'm an accountant. I'm a, I'm a CPA by background, went to school, worked for a, a public accounting firm. So it's, it's as if imputation is almost an accounting term. It's, you know, you got, um, you know, positive money over here, debt over here, and you're just kind of like switching the accounts. It's just imputed. It's a journal entry transaction. Um, and all that comes about by faith. In union with Christ, we're justified, credited with his righteousness, It's not the quality or size of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. It's Christ. Look to him. Look to Christ. God demands righteousness. He does. He he hasn't lowered his standard. He demands perfection. That was true when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and God has never lowered that standard, standard. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way to uphold his justice and show mercy to his people. Through Jesus. That's Romans 3 26. He showed, proves himself to be just and the justifier. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived as our substitute and died the death that we deserved for our unrighteousness, for our disobedience. Through faith in him, he takes our sins and we get his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 21. Some have called this the great exchange. When God looks at us through faith in Christ, he sees his son, and his perfect righteousness. It's as if we are cloaked in Christ's robes of righteousness and he's taken our filthy rags. Have you trusted in Christ today? Have you trusted in Christ this morning? Look to Jesus. He is, he's the anchor for your soul. This kind of trust will give you an anchor. If you do, you'll trust. Have you seen Christ? Uh, As Mark mentioned from last week in Ephesians chapter three, the mystery that's been revealed in the New Testament is that all people, Jew and Gentile, who put their faith in Christ will be justified. If you hear my voice this morning, God is calling you to come to him. You're starving and God is offering you a feast. Why starve in the midst of plenty? If you're sick and God has the cure, why perish when there's a remedy to save you? So what are the practical benefits? Practical benefits of you being declared righteous by faith in Christ. If you don't mind, turn to Romans 3. Romans 3. It's page 941 of your pew Bibles. I know we were were close to there a second ago. Romans chapter 3. So like I said earlier, it, it makes a preacher's job easier when... A New Testament author or the Bible itself interprets itself. But Paul not only interprets this, this text of scripture that we're looking at, but also gives his own practical application for us. So I'm just going to take those directly from Paul. Um, so I'm going to have uh, one application from Romans 3 and then three applications from Romans 4. So first, Romans three, twenty-seven and 28. Romans three twenty seven to 28. Again, in, in Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul is just expositing his doctrine of justification by faith. We're declared righteous um, in God's sight, apart from works, and he's using Abraham as his chief example. And then in, in verse 27 of Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So benefit number one to being justified by faith is humility, humility. When you grasp what God has done for you in Christ, you cannot be prideful. You contributed nothing to your justification other than the sin that made it necessary. A prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Justification is all of grace, all of God. Any boasting, any praise, All glory must go to him alone. So benefit number one is humility. Benefit number two, peace with God. Flip over a page or two in your Bible to Romans 5, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1. You see at the start of verse 1, it says, therefore. So Paul, again, he has been expounding the doctrine of justification justification by faith. And then he says, therefore, so this is Paul's application. Therefore, and I'll read verse one. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. This was actually our assurance of pardon after our prayer of confession this morning. So benefit number two, peace with God. Peace with God. All human beings are rebels against their creator. God is holy. We are not. And a holy God cannot dwell with an unholy, sinful people. That is the big problem that the Bible is trying to solve. But the good news is that God gave himself to save us from himself in Christ. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Do you ever have days where you say, am I even a Christian? Many of us, many Christians, have days where we don't feel justified. The good news is it's not about feeling justified, it's about looking to Christ and trusting Him. Justification assures you that Christ has completed His redemptive work, satisfied the justice of God the Father, and sealed you with His Holy Spirit. You were brought in by faith in Christ, and you stay in by faith in Christ. You don't have to work for your continued salvation, He will hold you fast. When we sin, when I sin, I often feel like I need to distance myself from God to clean myself up. I don't know if you guys have felt that way. I remember doing that a lot in college. Um, I was playing a college sport. And so I would feel like if I like sin during the week, but I wanted to play really well in a game, it's like, oh shoot, I'm, I, I messed up. And then I was almost performing acts of absolution or something, you know? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be extra, extra good and read my Bible more um, so that I can kind of earn God's favor. And I mean, I was a Christian at the time, but um, so that he could, he could bless me. Um, like I said, we're default legalists. But even as a Christian, we can rely on a works mentality to keep our favor with God. That was, that was wrong. That was me defaulting to my old man kind of legal uh, bent that we all have. But be thankful. The peace that Jesus earned for you can never be lost. Sinclair Ferguson has said, By faith in him, we are as righteous before the throne of God as he is righteous, meaning Jesus. For we are justified in his righteousness. His justification alone is ours. And here's a really good line. We can no more lose this justification than he can fall from heaven. We can no more lose this justification than he can fall from heaven. Our justification is as sure as Christ is seated at the right hand of God right now. And that's good news for us as Christians. There's nothing we can do to lose that. Benefit number three. Benefit number three, access to God. Verse two, look at verse two in Romans five. Romans five, verse two. I'll read the first part of the verse. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Hebrews 4.16 says something similar. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Access to God, fellowship with God, communion with God was what was lost in the Garden of Eden. You could summarize, I said this a second ago, you could summarize the entire message of the Bible as what a holy God has done to be able to dwell with an unholy people again. You were made for God. Every single one of us, we were made in his image and made for fellowship with him. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. That's St. Augustine. Because of Christ, our mediator, we have access to God again. That's good news. We don't have to hide from God and cover ourselves with fig leaves. We can have access to God again. We can address him as father. That is the unique thing about the new Testament. It's it's shocking. If you read your whole Bible that the only people who returned, uh, no individual ever prayed to God as father in the old Testament. And then Jesus shows up on the, on the scene. His disciples ask him, teach us how to pray Lord. And he says, our father who art in heaven, there is an intimate personal relationship that the Christian has with God, the father. And that is through Christ, the true obedient son. This is remarkable. As one pastor has said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to our heavenly father. And finally, benefit number four. Benefit number four is joy. Look at the end of Romans 5, 2, the end of verse 2 in Romans 5. Through him, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice. Did Abraham rejoice? Did he have joy? We're not really sure. We don't get a lot of his kind of internal thoughts uh, other than what we read this morning. He he was doubting. Um, But Jesus seemed to think that Abraham had joy in his life because of his faith in John 8:56. So we're in the New Testament, 2000 years after Abraham. Jesus in John 8:56 is talking to the Jewish people of his day about Abraham. And this is what Jesus says, "Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad." That kind of blows my mind to be honest with you. When you read the account in Genesis of Abraham's life and you think he actually saw Jesus, And rejoice that he saw Jesus. But that's what faith does. It was probably a cloudy cloudy picture of Jesus. We have a much clearer. As if we're looking through a glass clearly. Um, But Jesus is saying. That through God's promises to Abraham. Abraham saw him. And put his faith in Jesus. And this brought him joy. And gladness. And that's true of us as well. Like Abraham. May we see Jesus this morning. And may that bring us joy. I read this quote already, but here's what Martin Luther thought about it. He was a monk who was trying to earn his way in favor with God. Probably the best monk there ever was. And this is what he, this is what he said when he finally figured out that it wasn't about his own righteousness, his own good works. But it was about Christ and his good works that were credited to him by faith. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. He felt like he had entered paradise when he finally saw from scripture that it's nothing of works, all of grace and all of faith. To come from a place of guilt and wrath and fear and death which we all were in before Christ and then to be brought immediately because of someone else's obedience and to favor and peace and blessing and eternal life, to have the angry frown of an avenging judge turned away and all that replaced by the sweet smile of a father's love, there can be no happier situation. Knowing that we're declared righteous in God's sight, despite our works and are adopted into his family, will produce a heart of eternal joy. Christian, your chains are gone. You've been set free. If you, like Abraham, believe the promises of God, believe he sent his son to die for you as your substitute, you cannot help but be joyful and worship him. As we just sang, what a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work on our behalf. Give us the faith to believe in him. Give us the faith to trust in him, to believe you and your promises. And may we be built up into him, into his likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.